Psalm 23 is a Bible passage that seems particularly suitable for Good Shepherd's final service. It's our second Bible reading, and it's on page 12 of the service program. I'll read it now. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Before I start, are we feeling over, overly air-conditioned? Yes, I'm getting a vigorous nod of the head there. Right, I am going to ask someone, maybe Daniel, if you could just find your way, make your way into the booth, because I think Alvin isn't there anymore. Is Alvin there? Alvin's there? He's coming down. He's turned it off. Great. Maybe I'm... The, it's the, it's, there's a white box there in the booth. When you look at it on the way, it's right ahead of you. Definitely off? Definitely off. Okay. Good. Well, please keep page 12 open for us. Thanks very much, Daniel, by the way. Please keep 12, page 12 open so we can look down together at God's word during the sermon. Let's bow our heads now and pray for God's help. In Luke chapter 24, two of Jesus' disciples say to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? We pray, Father, that the experience of those disciples would be our experience this morning. As the scriptures are opened, please, by your Spirit, would our hearts burn within us. Amen. I wonder if you've ever come across a poem titled Invictus, written in 1875 by William Ernest Henley. Invictus means unconquerable. And the theme of the poem is Henley's personal independence, his commitment to controlling his own destiny, come what may. You might have heard the phrase, bloody but unbowed. That phrase comes from Invictus. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. The poem finishes with these lines, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. 
Psalm 23 could be called the Bible's answer to Invictus. King David, the author of Psalm 23, is glad that his fate is mastered by someone else, someone other than him. He's glad that his soul is captained by someone else, someone other than him. In Psalm 23, which was written to be sung with music, David sings joyfully about God exercising power over his life. He doesn't view himself as a puppet with no influence over his own activity. That's not what he's saying. Sheep aren't puppets. But he does see himself as a sheep with a powerful shepherd. And he rejoices in his shepherd's power. David wants us to rejoice in it too. Before we start looking closely at this psalm, it's worth pointing out that Psalm 23 only has 57 words in the original Hebrew. In this English translation, I'll save you counting it out, in this English translation it has 119 words, more than double the number in the original language. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. 11 words in English, just four in Hebrew. He makes me lie down is five words in English, but amazingly, just one in Hebrew. And since Psalm 23 is made up of only 57 Hebrew words, there will be times when we'll pause to consider a particular Hebrew word. That's not something we usually do, but I think it's necessary with this psalm because so much good freight is carried by so few words. David begins with a headline statement. Verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. That sums up the whole psalm. The rest of Psalm 23 is essentially explanatory notes for the opening line. The rest of the psalm is essentially footnotes for line one, designed to answer all the questions we might have about that grand claim, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. And so we're going to spend a big chunk of our time on that single line, verse 1. Lord, with uppercase letters, is how English Bibles translate Yahweh, God's Hebrew name. And we should register that because it shows that David has someone in particular in view. A name marks out a particular person. David has the God of Israel in view, the God of the Bible, the God revealed in the New Testament as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. David knew that every nation in his day had its own God. And so in verse 1, he's declaring his confidence in his God, the God of Israel. If you're listening today as someone on the outside of Christianity looking in, well, thank you very much for listening. It will be helpful for you to know that Psalm 23 isn't saying, 
this is what the Creator God does for everyone in the world. That's not the message of this psalm. Psalm 23 is saying, this is what the God of the Bible offers to do for anyone who comes to him. If you come to the God of the Bible as a sheep, wanting to be shepherded by him, then all of this is for you. All of Psalm 23. Sheep, meet your shepherd. But if you stay on the outside, looking in, then these wonderful promises won't apply to you. My hope for you, if you are listening as a non-Christian, is that today you'll say to the God revealed in the Bible, take me on as one of your sheep. Please be my shepherd. And if you come to him like that, he will lovingly receive you. No matter what you might have done in the past, or how far you've strayed from him. How can a righteous, pure and holy God do that? How can he welcome all who come to him, no matter what they've done? Well, we'll hear more about that later. But let's press on with verse 1, this headline. Psalm 23 in a single verse. When David says, I shall not be in want, he's saying, with Yahweh as my shepherd, I won't be deprived. I won't be deprived of anything I truly need. God's role as provider is a recurring theme in the Bible. In Genesis 22, God commands Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his beloved only son. At the very last moment, an angel of the Lord stops Abraham from killing Isaac. The angel says, now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. At that point in Genesis 22, we think we've reached the end of the story because Abraham has passed the test. But the story doesn't actually end there. There's still one problem that needs to be addressed. Now that Isaac won't be sacrificed, Abraham has nothing to offer to God. He has wood, he has a knife, he has fire, he has everything needed for sacrifice apart from the actual sacrificial offering itself. But then he looks up and sees a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham sacrifices that ram as a burnt offering and he calls God Yahweh Yireh, the Lord will provide. God provided the missing piece in the sacrificial puzzle. And centuries later, God did that again. This time, not an animal, but his only son, Jesus, Yahweh Yireh, the Lord will provide. But God's role as provider isn't limited to providing what's needed for the forgiveness of sins. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, there's a model prayer that we prayed earlier in this service, which includes the request, give us this day our daily bread. Sometimes people say that a family member is the breadwinner of the family. But people shepherded by God see him as the ultimate breadwinner. They echo Jesus' words, give us this day our daily bread. They echo Abraham's words, the Lord will provide. And they echo, David, and they echo David's words, I shall not be in want. 
in a room with wallpaper, wherever you look, you see the pattern on that wallpaper repeated over and over. And it's been said that Christians should wallpaper our reality with the Word of God. The idea is that we should take some core Bible verses into our thinking and never let go of them. So it's as if they're on our personal wallpaper. They always stay in view for us, wherever we are, whatever we're doing. Psalm 23 verse 1 would be an excellent choice to put on the wallpaper of your mind and heart. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. As I said earlier, those 11 words are just four words in the Hebrew and the closest you can get to a four-word English version is this. Yahweh, shepherd, not deprived. Yahweh, shepherd, not deprived. Those four words would be good to have on your personal wallpaper. We've spent plenty of time on verse 1 because it's Psalm 23 in a single verse, but let's turn now to the rest of the psalm, the explanatory notes that put flesh on the bones of the claim in verse 1. The rest of the psalm breaks down into three sections, God's shepherding in the good times, the bad times, and in the forever times. First, God's shepherding in the good times, verses 2 and 3. These verses aren't about extraordinarily good times. They're about times without any particular threat or major difficulty. David gives us two reasons why life is better with God shepherding you, even when everything in your life is pretty much as you want it to be. The first reason he gives is restoration. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. I mentioned that we'd need to examine some Hebrew words in the psalm, and one of those is nefesh, which is the word translated soul in verse 3. Sometimes people use the English word soul when they want to talk about the inner person, not the outer body. But nefesh means the whole person, outer and inner, body and spirit. Linguists have tracked nefesh throughout the Old Testament and concluded it means, here's a quote, the total person, both one's physical and non-physical composition, end quote. Well, that's worth noting because it shows God, in his role as our shepherd, isn't only interested in the inner person. He's also interested in the body and our physical needs. So when David says, Yahweh, shepherd, not deprived, he's not saying something mystical like, God gives me inner peace and that's all I need. No, the shepherding God offers is whole person shepherding, body as well as spirit. And that fits so well with what we're told in verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. 
He leads me beside quiet waters. That sheep in verse 2 is being well looked after physically. It's lying down in green grass as far as its sheep's eye can see, with access to water nearby. And the water source isn't noisy rapids, a scary torrent, it's quiet waters, just what a sheep wants. If we put verse 2 into human terms, what's it saying? It tells us that God provides his people with food and drink in peace. He knows we're not floating spirits. He knows we've got bodies. He gave them to us. And so he generously meets our physical needs. Notice how the start of verse 3, he restores my nephesh, follows on from verse 2. When physical bodily needs are met, verse 2, the whole person benefits. Start of verse 3. One of the main ways in which God provides restoration is through the weekly Sabbath day. He knows the only way some people will ever rest is if they're firmly commanded to rest. And so there it is in the Ten Commandments, number four. Commandment for a weekly day off from work. The Sabbath is a day that's set apart for God. It's a day to fix our eyes on him and realign ourselves with him. But it's also a day for refreshment. In Exodus 23, God says, Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman, and the alien, the foreigner, may be refreshed. God wants to refresh your nephesh. Couldn't resist saying that. <laughs> it's what he wants to do. That's the kind of God he is. We keep in step with his shepherding when we look after ourselves physically. It's what God wants. Restoration is the first of David's Two reasons to rejoice in God's shepherding in the good times. The second reason is transformation. David says in verse 3, he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. David knows without God's shepherding, he can't be sure he'll choose righteous paths. Left to himself, and we see this in David's life story, left to himself, he can't be sure he'll do the right thing. And the same is true for us. It's partly because we don't always know what's right and what's wrong. God transforms us by teaching us the difference through his word. But God also transforms us by holding us back when we want to do the wrong thing, even though we're well aware it's wrong. We want to go ahead and do it anyway, because it holds a twisted appeal to our fallen hearts. But perhaps someone's praying for us. Or perhaps we ourselves cry out for God's help and he holds us back. He restrains us by his powerful spirit so that we don't sin. He guides us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. A few years ago, I heard the very sad story of a West Coast pastor. He was pastor of a solidly biblical church who committed adultery with a woman who at that time was on the staff of a solidly biblical 
Christian non-profit. They were both married. They both had children. They're examples of people who knew that committing adultery would be morally wrong. They didn't lack that moral information. They already had that information. And yet they went ahead and committed adultery. It shows that we can't trust ourselves to take the right path even when we know what the right path is. We need God's shepherding. When temptation comes, we must cry out to God to help us say no to wrongdoing for his name's sake. Otherwise, we'll bring dishonor on his great name. We've been thinking about God's shepherding in the good times, the restoration and transformation he offers. But then in verses 4 and 5, dark clouds block out the sunshine. David speaks of the valley of the shadow of death. He speaks of evil. He speaks of enemies. And that brings us to the next part of the sermon, God's shepherding in the bad times. Is verse 1, Yahweh, shepherd, not deprived? Is that verse still true in the bad times? Well, please look down with me to verses 4 and 5. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. In Bible times, the shepherd's rod was a heavy stick, a club, a cudgel. It was used to bash predators if they were already up close and attacking the sheep. The shepherd's staff was more of a long pole that could be shoved at predators to keep them away. Both those tools of the trade helped the shepherd to protect his sheep. David is saying that his shepherd, the God of the Bible, has weapons at his disposal and he'll use those weapons to protect his people. It's very comforting to know that. If you're one of his sheep and you find yourself in the valley of the shadow of death, but of course, we can all think of believers who have gone through that dark valley and haven't come out of it safely. We can think of believers who were attacked by robbers or perhaps in other countries by violent persecutors. We can think of believers attacked by chronic health problems or terminal disease. We can think of believers attacked by financial difficulties or marriage difficulties or singleness difficulties. It can seem as if God has turned aside from us and let the darkness win. It can seem as if verse 1 isn't true anymore. It can seem as if verse 1 should be rewritten. Yahweh, shepherd, deprived. But no, even in times like those, there is still comfort in verse 4 for believers mauled by some kind of attack. 
Verse 4 upholds the truth of verse 1. This is how it works. Faith tells us, as we look at verse 4, that God could have protected us. Because he has weapons of protection. And so he must have put down his rod and his staff for his own good purposes, in his wisdom. That's the logic of faith in response to verse 4. God has weapons of protection at his disposal. Since he could have protected us, he must have allowed us to suffer for his mysterious but good purposes. Nabil Qureshi was a former Muslim who became a believer in Jesus while he was at college. He went on to have an outstanding ministry as a Christian speaker and writer. His book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, made it onto the New York Times bestseller list. In August 2016, Nabil was diagnosed with advanced stomach cancer. He was 33 years old. Two months later, in October 2016, his wife suffered a miscarriage. In May 2017, he announced that the cancer had spread to his chest. By August, it had spread to his liver. And on September the 16th, 2017, at the age of 34, Nabil Qureshi died. Listen to what he said just three weeks before his death. I'm asking God to heal. I believe with all my heart that God has the power to heal in the blink of an eye. But my faith in God isn't shaken by whether or not he will heal me. I will believe in God no matter what. I trust him. He is sovereign and I love him. End quote. That's the faith of a sheep who trusts his shepherd even when his shepherd mysteriously puts down his weapons of protection and allows cancer and miscarriage to do their worst. The comfort comes from knowing that the shepherd has power at his disposal and must have good reasons for not using that power. One of those good reasons is that suffering often brings us closer to him, to God. It makes us reach out for him. Earlier in the psalm, during the good times, David refers to God as he. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He restores me. But when the dark clouds roll in, there in verse 4, he switches to you. David doesn't say, he is with me in verse 4. He says, you are with me. When suffering comes, we stop speaking about God and we start speaking to him. Verse 5, like verse 4, upholds the truth of verse 1. It teaches us that God is able to fulfill those verse 1 expectations, Yahweh shepherd not deprived, even when David is surrounded by enemies. Somehow God has managed to smuggle food past those enemies and onto David's table. And not just food, also oil, which was used in that hot climate to smooth out parched hair and soften up dry skin. 
And not just food, not just oil, there's also a cup filled to overflowing with water or perhaps wine. Verse 5 is a striking example to us of giving thanks in all circumstances. Our natural tendency when enemies threaten us is to, is to focus on the enemies. But when we do that, we overlook the evidence of God's continuing provision and love. It's good to train our eyes to see God's mercies instead of fixating on the bad part of our situation. I'll say that again. It's good for us to do as David does there in verse 5. It's good for us to train our eyes to see God's mercies instead of fixating on the bad part of our situation. Well, let's move on now to the last part of the psalm. God's shepherding in the forever times. David says in verse 6, Surely goodness and love will follow me all of the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. One of the 57 words carrying all the freight of Psalm 23 is the word translated follow in verse 6. But follow is a pretty mild word, really. It makes us think of God's goodness and love wandering along behind us. There they are in the background, waving at us. Forget about that mildness. The Hebrew word translated follow really means pursue. The same Hebrew word is found in Psalm 7, verse 1, where David says, Oh Lord my God, save me from all those who pursue me. Talking about his enemies, his persecutors. So verse 6 is saying that God's goodness and love will relentlessly pursue us. They are in hot pursuit. When we look over our shoulder, they're not waving at us from a distance. They're breathing down our necks. I wonder, if there, is there anything you're dreading at the moment? Something awful that you fear might happen to you? If it happens that dreadful thing, that awful thing, God's goodness and love will still be pursuing you. You can turn to him, your loving shepherd, to receive his good help. Surely goodness and love will pursue me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In David's period of salvation history, God had a house. First the tabernacle, and then the temple in Jerusalem. And so if you wanted to get near to God, you could go to his house. It was God's dwelling place. God was there. So when David says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, he's saying, I will be where God is forever, throughout eternity. And for David, God's presence, fellowship with God himself, will be the very best thing about eternity. It's because we'll be with God forever in his perfect place that verse 1 is true for God's people even when we're breathing our last breath. Yahweh, shepherd, not deprived, 
even when we're breathing our last breath, we know we'll be with him forever. Before we finish, we need to fast forward from David's time 1,000 years to Jerusalem in the early 30s AD, where we find Jesus, one of David's descendants, addressing a crowd of people, a crowd of his fellow Jews who know Psalm 23 very well. And Jesus says to them, I am the good shepherd. That's what he says. If you think that sounds rather like Jesus is claiming to be the divine shepherd of Psalm 23, you're absolutely right. He is claiming to be the shepherd who David worshipped. Come down to earth and incarnated as a human being. But Jesus hasn't stopped. He goes on to say this. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, for the sheep. He's saying not only does God shepherd us tenderly throughout our lives, God has also come down to earth to lay down his life for his sheep so that we would be eternally safe and secure. If God hadn't done that, there's no way we could have dwelt with him forever. There's no way verse 6 of Psalm 23 could have been written. Our sinful wrongdoing would have made that impossible. God had to come down in the person of his son and die on the cross in our place so that we might be spared the punishment we deserve for our wrongdoing. Only with God dying in our place in the person of his son could we be spared that punishment. And so the good shepherd became the sacrificial sheep. The Apostle John ties this together in a verse we heard in our first Bible reading, Revelation chapter 7, verse 17, the theme verse of Good Shepherd Anglican Church. For the Lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. Looking out at the people here, so far as I can tell, the People I see, perhaps everyone here, has chosen the God of the Bible as their shepherd. We've all come to him and said, we want you to be our shepherd through Jesus. But I wonder whether there are times when we keep God's shepherding at arm's length. We don't come to him for as much shepherding as he is offering us, as he wants to give us. I wonder if there's space in your life for more of God's shepherding, more provision from him, more restoration, more transformation. I wonder if we're noticing his ongoing shepherding, even in the bad times, and if we're looking forward to the presence of our shepherd with us throughout eternity. Let's keep coming to him for his shepherding. Let's come eagerly. Please bow your heads to pray. Father, it astounds us to think that our divine shepherd 
would also come down to earth and die as the sacrificial sheep. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to do that for us. Thank you, Father, for his willingness to lay down his life for us. Father, we see from this psalm and from the cross that you are a trustworthy shepherd. Please help us, we pray, to trust in your shepherding in all circumstances. For Jesus' sake, Amen.